we're gonna find out like we're related at some point. We might be. Welcome to People Who Do Things, a podcast about creating and creative people. I'm John H. Matthews. And I'm Laura Buckwald. On the last episode, we were honored to have Claudia Zuluaga, author of Fort Starlight, on for a great conversation and to talk about her book and her writing process and teaching writing. And after we finished, we had the great idea to to call Claudia up and ask for one more thing from her. And fortunately for all of us, she was happy to do it. And uh, what came from that follows here. A reading of part of Chapter 2 of Fort Starlight, read by the author, Claudia Zuluaga. The rain and winds kick up. The tarp sucks in and sucks out. Ida heard this noise the night before in the dark, but couldn't figure out what it was. The house is breathing. Respiration, automatic, rhythmic. Ida stares at the tarp, counting the seconds between breaths and matching them with her own. She wonders if and when the builders will come back to finish, hopefully not before Friday. She survived. In the bright sun of the morning, she finds mosquito bites all over her arms and legs, one on her chin. All of the humidity and sweating, even the mosquitoes, pulled the last of the toxicity out of her. So much happened in just a few days, the rushing, the packing, the momentum of leaving everything that was nothing to lose and would not miss her anyway. For the first time, her body pulses with energetic confidence. She has three nights to go, but she will make it even without light bulbs or cross ventilation. There aren't any screens in the windows and she isn't about to invite any more mosquitoes in. Today, she doesn't have to go outside at all. She can stay here all day, read her book and take a cold bath in the virgin tub. The rooms are perfect boxes, the corners crisp, and she is protected. The back corner of the house is the tarp, blue and alive. The house is breathing. She walks into the kitchen and looks out the back window at the field that leads to the canals. A sleek white egret steps gingerly across the muddy banks, its legs so thin that she can barely make them out, as though it is floating along in the air, a small, low-lying cloud. This house will be someone's happy beginning. Ida looks at the spot where the stove will go and imagines someone standing there, pushing scrambled eggs around with a spatula, popping the toast down for another round talking to someone in the next room. Other houses will soon be built on the lots on Ken's map, and there will be neighbors for friends, and they can take turns making dinner for each other. A dozen times she touches her cheek to the powdery sheetrock, letting it give her a soft kiss. Thank God she bought the book. The Luck Unicorn. Mysterious, stenciled unicorns were appearing on people's front doors. The blue chalk ones brought good luck to the people inside but the red chalk ones brought the obliteration of everything good in their lives. Newborn babies contracted deadly infections, furnaces exploded, damaging secrets were brought to light. 
The part of the book that you can't quite swallow is that it is all told in the voice of a six-year-old. A six-year-old with a far better vocabulary than even Ida has, and what seems to be unlimited freedom for roaming the streets alone late at night as she tries to find out who is responsible for the stencils. Ida stops reading when what she suspected would happen does happen. The six-year-old comes home just before sunrise, only to find a red stencil on her own door. The sun is setting. Ida closes the book and thinks about the stock boy in the supermarket, the raw look he gave her, how long they locked eyes. As it gets darker, she imagines going into cars at closing time and slipping inside. No one will know she's there, and the employees, except for him, will exit through the back door while she wanders the dim aisles. He will sense her. The door will be locked and the lights will go out and she will hear the sound of his breathing. She will stand still, waiting for him to find her in the dark, a rough warm hand on the cool skin at the back of her neck. The next morning's Wednesday, halfway through, just two days away from the check. It's almost nine o'clock when she wakes. If she were still in Astor, she'd be leaving for work in the Astor Community Center, setting up crafts tables for the adult day campers with glue sticks and glitter and markers and paints. It was the only job she'd ever quit and given any notice. They were autistic or had Down syndrome, and one who didn't fit in at all but was just plain blind. They all needed something to do. She brought them to matinees at the Astor Movie Theater, took a chartered bus to the zoo two towns away, danced the hokey pokey in the alley cat when the weather was terrible. Ida splashes water on her face and tugs her t-shirt and shorts. She wonders if anyone misses her. She opens the door to the bright sun and closes it again. She goes to the bathroom and brushes her teeth. Three minutes have passed since she first opened her eyes. She should have brought more books. She sits on the floor with a handful of crackers and opens the luck unicorn. The six-year-old has decided to wipe away the red chalk unicorn stencil. No need for her mother to find it in panic. She watches her mother drink coffee and fry eggs and is relieved to see no signs of imminent disaster. The house does not burn down from a rebel flame on the stove. Nobody chokes. Together they pack her bag and go out to wait for the school bus. How this child makes it through every day not sleeping, Ida has no idea, but when the book is three-quarters finished, she closes it. Better to save the rest for later. Ida presses her feet together, closes her eyes, inhales very slowly, exhales, tries to meditate, concentrating on the mantra of soon, 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 but she can't do it. Her limbs are too charged, like she is full of caffeine. She looks at her Timex and does the math. 53 and one half hours of this. She looks out the kitchen window and sees a fading rainbow so high and wide that she can't see either end. She pushes her feet into her canvas tennis shoes, grabs a bottle of water and $20 and walks out the front door. Maybe she'll find that the supermarket isn't so far and she can buy herself a few more books. The grass is damp on her ankles. She turns right. Stubby trees, soggy dark canals, fields of buzzing grass. This is not how Ida pictured Florida. No plastic flamingos, conch shells, tourists in loud shirts. Nobody ever imagines anything but the coast, and she hasn't seen a speck of coastline. The place looks thirsty and rough like something from a National Geographic safari show. Ida walks with sweaty determination, not turning into any of the streets she passes, walking straight until the road ends in sandy dirt. Across a long field, beyond a stand of trees, she can make out two houses. 
She wants to see them up close to see if anyone lives in them, but the yellow-green grass prohibits her shortcut. It has to be full of snakes. She backtracks and makes the first left. The sun is getting serious now, and she has no sunscreen, no hat. She will burn and peel, and that is okay. Brand new skin for her fresh start. One of the houses comes into clearer view, but it isn't as close as it seems. When she gets closer, she sees a glistening blue rectangular swimming pool. It even looks clean. She wishes she knew how to swim. She can tread water for a few seconds, but she never goes under, afraid of some force pulling her down. She saw a movie once where a woman dove into a pool, and as she tried to surface, realized she was trapped. Ida approaches the ivory stucco facade and reaches for the door. There's no knob, just a hole. She puts her hand on the door and it opens. It's so bright inside. She looks up and sees the sun. There's no roof, only wooden beams and gray concrete. Know anything about armadillos, what they eat, if they bite people? She jogs back to the road. The weather's changing. Dark gray clouds coalesce, sweeping across the pale blue like a tidal wave. The sky crackles with lightning and it begins to pour. She runs, laughing toward her house. She's a moving target, but she's no longer hot. The next morning, Thursday, she wakes to the sound of her brother Robert's voice. Ida, quick, come in here, he says, his voice so clear and real that she can see him as he looked that last day, the unlit cigarette between his two fingers, the brim of his fedora over his eyes fingertips drumming on the thigh of suit pants that were too floppy for his bony teenage legs. I'm coming, she says, and props herself up on her arms. Jesus, Ida, hurry up! He sounds so impatient with her that even after she's fully awake, she can't shake the feeling that she's disappointed him once again. He used to tell her to make sure she got out of Aster. Don't fester here, don't let yourself get ruined, and she would nod as if to say, of course, why would I? but she almost had. She'd forgiven him for leaving her behind and not looking back, not writing, not telling her what it was like to leave Aster and Dora Hill behind. She'd thought they were the same, but the day he left, he treated her like part of everything he was trying to escape. Robert told her that their parents had once tried to give them away to an orphanage. The image of the orphanage would sit there between the two of them, unverifiable, dark, strange, and very easy for her to believe. She did believe it. There was never any real malice, just ambivalence, but their parents were rarely around. When they were, the doors were closed. They displayed no curiosity about whether Ida and Robert were hungry, feverish, failing at school. There was no pretense of family dinners, and she and her brother had turned into all-day snackers, eating tuna from the can, and Robert was the one who who had to say, That day, she couldn't stand up straight. We need to take Ida to the hospital. I think it's her appendix. And it took them an hour to take him seriously enough to load her into the car and stop insisting that she probably just had to fart. They made a pretense of griping about how much it would cost, but in the end, the state of New York paid for it anyway. They'd lived in a cluttered, sunless house at the bottom of Door Hill that her mother had inherited when her own parents died. It was the lowest point in town, where the rain runoff turned the yards eternally muddy. Red-eyed men walked out of the ravines, clutching bottles. Collarless dogs came out of nowhere, barked, disappeared back into the woods. Where had Robert gone? Her guest was somewhere warm. He hated winter, his shivering skinny body. 
Ida takes a cool shower, using the pear shampoo all over her body, but the lather and scent don't take the feeling away. Any good feelings she had are gone. She feels empty, ugly, doomed, transported right back to Door Hill. Robert is free, but she is still stuck. It's because she has her mother's lashless brown eyes, her father's bad posture. She is like them, but Robert is Robert. He looks like himself and only himself. His dark hair is an Overdorf hair. The farthest she has ever made it from Door Hill was three quarters of a mile to the basement apartment at the center of town. Unless now counts. It probably doesn't. Will the taxi come tomorrow? Will Ken have a check for her? She'd been so stupidly certain. She steps outside and stands in the sun. Walking is the only antidote. It isn't until the house is almost out of sight that she realizes she forgot her water bottle. Already she's thirsty, but she's gone too far to turn back. She left her watch, too, and she can't tell how much time has gone by. She stops several times, crouching to rest. She can't see her future anymore. Can't see her living in Linda's apartment, baking in that big kitchen with the window that overlooks the park. Can't see herself getting out of here alive. She lets herself cry for a moment. Just a few tears. Inside her house, she finishes the last bottle of water, then drinks glass after glass of the sour water from the tap. She paces while she eats potato chips and popcorn, not tasting them, until her jaw begins to ache. The house is grotesque. She hates it, hates the damp concrete smell, the cruel blackness of the bathroom, the hot echo of her own breath. Inside or outside, she is trapped. She stares out the window, hoping to see the egret again. And there, there it is. Only now there are two of them. One takes a step toward the other, its long neck a dainty S. One more night. You have been listening to People Who Do Things, a podcast with John H. Matthews and Laura Buckwald. Thank you for listening. Thank you.